Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It is indeed another episode. This is version 24. And we have another jam-packed episode for you this week. Get you caught up on all things NFL. Uh, NBA and NHL are already underway in their seasons. And uh, some, some baseball free agent news to get into. But of course, we'll start off uh, in the PGA Tour. And last weekend's tournament was the Sony Open in Hawaii. It was the second weekend in a row spent in Hawaii. This week, or that tournament was uh, held at the YLA Country Club in Honolulu, Hawaii. Played a par 70. It was 7,044 yards, so it was about 500 yards shorter than the course the week before at Kapalua. And this was also a much narrower and flatter course than Kapalua. But it was definitely another beautiful scene in Hawaii. Course looked great. And I wasn't sure on last week's episode when I was projecting this week's tournament, I wasn't sure if we were going to see the the very low scores we saw at Kapalua. But turns out we did because there were three players that shot 20 under par or better. Your winner for the Sony Open was Kevin Na with a score of 21 under par. And he really catapulted himself up the leaderboard on Saturday, which is known as moving day. Well, he did just that because he fired off a bogey-free 9-under on Saturday. And he followed it up on Sunday with a 5-under. So he got his fifth career win on tour. And the weird thing about Kevin Na is he's made about 420-ish starts on the PGA Tour. And in his first 369 starts, he only had one win. So he's had four wins in his last 55 starts with this one. So that's about one win every 13 to 14 starts. That's not bad. That's a good good average there uh, for a golfer who's not really considered uh, great by any means. He's not bad, and he can put together some good rounds, but... This win moved him up to number 23 in the world rankings, uh, which that's that's pretty damn good. Uh, second place, there was a tie at 20 under par. Two, two guys shot 20 under, and that was Chris Kirk, Joaquin Neiman. Chris Kirk, you want consistency? How about five under in all four rounds? That sounds pretty consistent to me. Now, Joaquin Neiman... He rattled off an 8-under in the first round on Thursday. And uh, on moving day, he went 7-under. So that kept him up top all weekend. And he actually has his second 
second place finish in a row because he finished, well, he lost in a playoff hole at Kapalua the week before last. So he's gone second, second in both of the Hawaiian events. Not a bad trip to Hawaii for Joaquin Neiman. Now there was a three-way tie for fourth place at 19 under par, and that was Webb Simpson, Mark Leishman, and Brendan Steele. They all shot 19 under, all finished in fourth. But let's revisit Rick's picks to click for the Sony Open. And I'm just going to say it was not a good week. I started off with Lanto Griffin. He had come in there with three top 13s in his last five starts, and he had finished tied for seventh at YLA last year. Uh, He ended up finishing at 11 under par, which was good for 41st. He shot, his best round was five under, and that was Friday's second round. He just never really could get it going. Uh, 11 unders in a normal tournament will probably be a little better than 41st, but it was not the case this weekend. Now, my second pick to click was Harris English. He had won at Kapalua uh, the week before, and... In eight career events at YLA, he had made the cut in seven of them with three top tens. So I, coming off a win, I liked for him to uh, <clears throat> finish inside the cut line. And he finished uh, one shot better than Lanto Griffin. He finished at 12 under, which was good for 32nd. Uh, he shot an even par 70 in... Thursday's opening round and then followed it up with a six under on Friday. So after Friday's round, he was <clears throat> he was looking like he may make a run at it, but he kind of fizzled out and never got there. So I missed on those two. Now I realized uh, after the podcast went out that I did not give you my third pick to click this week. So my sincere apologies on that. I totally slipped up on that. I did have a third pick, and it was Sung J.M., and he finished the worst out of all three of them at nine under par, which was good for tied for 56th, so uh, I did not click on any of my three picks to click this week. I went 0 for, uh, I went 3 for 3 at Kapalua, 0 for 3 at YLA, so uh, finished up the Hawaiian trip at 50% on clicks, so not great. But this weekend, the PGA Tour heads back to the continental United States and California. It is the American Express. That's held at the PGA West Stadium Course in La Quinta, California. PGA West plays at a par 72, and it's 7,113 yards. Cool thing about this course is the 17th hole is an island green nicknamed Alcatraz, and there's rocks surrounding it. Uh, Of course, California courses are always windy. They're tough to play. So that is going to be a very interesting hole to watch this weekend. And the field has some solid golfers. A few top-ranked players in the world are playing, and for the first time uh, in the event, at least in recent years, there will be no amateurs playing in this tournament. So everybody with a PGA Tour card 
uh, or everybody playing in this tournament will be a, a PGA Tour Pro. So I'll give you Rick's picks to click for this weekend's the American Express. And I'll start off with Tony Finau. Finau is number 22 in the world rankings. He finished tied for 31st at Kapalua a couple weeks ago. He took last week off, so he did not play at YLA. But he was finished tied for 14th here at La Quinta last year. And so far this year, he is 6 for 6 in cuts made. With a pair of top, uh, a pair of top tens as eight place, eighth place finishes, and he's uh, got four top twenty fives in those six starts. So he's he started off this PGA calendar year pretty strong, four top twenty fives and six starts, including two of top tens. So Finau is always good. He's a birdie machine. He can roll them in from anywhere. So uh, I'd look for him to be in that top twenty five range. My second pick to click this week is Matthew Wolf. Matt Wolf's up to number 15 in the world, and he has not played since the Masters in November, where he missed the cut. But uh, prior to uh, the Masters, he had back-to-back second-place finishes at the U.S. Open and the Shriners Open. And then he finished off the year with three straight bad finishes, including that Masters. But he's a California kid. He's definitely well-rested, and he's familiar with the course. So I like for him to come out and uh, at least show some fight and compete, finish inside that top 25. Now my final pick to click for the American Express is Patrick Cantlay. And Cantlay is number 10 in the world. He finished tied for ninth here last year. And just a couple months ago, he won the Zozo Championship. And since then, since that win at the Zozo, yeah, the only other two events he's played in, he's finished inside the top 17, 13th and 17th, including one of those at the Masters. Patrick Cantlay is also a California guy who is probably in the prime of his career, playing the best golf of his life, and I certainly like for him to finish inside the top 25. But we'll move on to the National Football League. And last weekend was the divisional round of the playoffs. We had four games, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. So we'll recap those in order of how they were played. The leadoff game on Saturday was the NFC matchup. The number six Los Angeles Rams traveled to Lambeau Field to take on the top-seeded Green Bay Packers. I picked Green Bay to win the game, and Green Bay won the game 32-18. But Jared Goff, he started at quarterback for the Rams. Now, he was less than 100% still dealing with that thumb injury that he had surgery on a couple weeks ago. But he wore gloves on both of his hands, kind of a la old school Tom Brady, to help with the grip in the cold weather. Uh, And he actually had some good zip on his throws. He looked much better than he did the week before in Seattle. Goff went 21 of 27 passing. Now, it was only 174 yards, but he did have a touchdown. Uh, 
And yet again, the Rams' offense ran through rookie running back Cam Akers, who had 18 carries for 90 yards and a touchdown. Now, the Rams' defense, that that was a storyline of coming into this game. They had completely dominated the Seahawks the week before in Seattle. Uh, Aaron Donald got banged up in that game, but he still played here against Green Bay. So I, I told I picked Green Bay, but I liked uh, if if the Rams defense showed up to play, I liked their chances. Well, they did not show up to play. Uh, the Rams defense had zero sacks and forced zero turnovers. So they did not look any sort of special at all. Aaron Rodgers had all day to throw. It was completely comfortable in the pocket. Rodgers was in complete control all game. Uh, he just really kind of added to his case of NFL MVP for the season. Uh, Rodgers went 22 of 36 passing for 296 yards, two touchdowns. And Aaron Jones, 14 carries for 99 yards and a touchdown, adding another catch for 14 yards. So Aaron Jones had 113 yards offense and a touchdown. Uh, Now, Green Bay's defense is the one that showed up. They had four sacks and five tackles for a loss. So Green Bay's defense showed up in a big way, and they were very instrumental uh, in in why Green Bay won. Uh, The Rams just never could get it going. Uh, Packers ended up cruising to a 32-18 victory. So I was right on that game. Uh, The second game, Saturday night, was in the AFC, and that was the number five Baltimore Ravens at the number two Buffalo Bills. I picked Buffalo to win. It was a tough one to pick, but I ended up picking Buffalo, and Buffalo won 17-3. This game was just really ugly all the way around. It was a typical AFC slugfest. And weather was a huge factor. Uh, It was very chilly, super windy. In fact, both kickers, uh, Justin Tucker, who's one of the best kickers in the history of the NFL, and Bills kicker Tyler Bass, they both missed two field goals each in this game. They both were one for three on field goal attempts. Uh, It was just kind of a weird, wonky game. And just really ugly. Now, Lamar Jackson, he kind of put the team on his back against Tennessee in that second half, which he was going to need to do against Buffalo if Baltimore was going to win. Lamar Jackson was not great. He went 14 of 24 passing for 162 yards and an interception, and he only had nine carries for 34 yards on the ground. He ended up getting hurt later in the game, and he did not come back. Uh, So undrafted free agent rookie Tyler Huntley came in and was actually decent for a couple of drives. Um, But by that point, the game was was already pretty much out of reach for the Ravens based on kind of how it was going. Uh, Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. I said last week that that combo is just unstoppable. Well, they went off again, both of them, 
further proving that they cannot be stopped. Josh Allen went 23 of 20, uh, 23 of 37 passing for 206 yards and a touchdown. Now, Stefan Diggs, he had eight catches for 106 yards and one touchdown. So, Stefan Diggs had 50% of the receiving yards. He had 106 out of the 206 receiving yards. So, Josh Allen's 15 passes to other receivers only got 100 yards. Since eight of them went to Diggs for 106. And the only touchdown. Both guys are just playing on a ridiculous level right now. Uh, Allen is right behind Aaron Rodgers for NFL MVP. Just those two are fun to watch. You keep waiting for one of them to slow down or show signs, but that just hasn't happened. But kind of the game-changing moment in this game was Buffalo's defense. Uh, they showed up against Lamar Jackson. Corner Teron Johnson had a 101-yard pick six late in the third quarter. Uh, he intercepted Lamar Jackson in the end zone, ran it all the way back for a pick six. That made it 17-3. to And after that play, uh, it was pretty apparent that Baltimore was not going to win, especially when Jackson went down. Um, that was actually the final scoring play of the game uh, at all, as, a, as any scoring play. So Buffalo ends up beating Baltimore and move on to the a- first AFC championship since uh, early 90s, 93, I believe. So that city, that city's uh, going to be partying all week long here. But Sunday's games started off in the AFC, the number six Cleveland Browns, traveled to Arrowhead Stadium to take on the top-seeded Kansas City Chiefs. Now, I picked Kansas City to win, and Kansas City did win 22-17. to However, this game was out of control. It was probably the best game out of this set of four games for the divisional round, and there were some crazy plays that made this game a lot closer than it should have been. And there were really... Two big moments that basically defined this game. The first one was with a minute 42 left in the first half. Baker Mayfield found Richard Higgins, shout out to Mesquite High School in Mesquite, Texas, for a 25-yard catch and run. And as Higgins was approaching the goal line with the football, he extended the ball toward the pylon. Chiefs linebacker Daniel Sorensen came flying in and nailed Higgins with his helmet to jar the ball loose and cause a fumble. Well, the ball rolled into the end zone and then out of bounds. So that caused a touchback, which means Kansas City gets the ball on their 25-yard line. The play was reviewed and the fumble was upheld. And after the game, Bill's coach, Kevin Stefanski, came out and said, yeah, I appreciate the effort, but I tell my players not to reach for the pylon. Uh, You know, you could tell Higgins was visibly upset after it happened. I mean, it was a huge hit. Kind of surprised that Higgins wasn't hurt. And the hit itself was actually should have been a penalty because Sorensen hit Higgins 
led with his helmet. Didn't hit Higgins in the helmet, but Sorensen made first contact with the crown of his helmet, which by definition is illegal use of the helmet. So it should have been uh, a 15-yard penalty and a first down inside the, well, basically at the goal line. But that, you can't challenge penalties, or that penalty anyways, and that's not reviewable. They only reviewed the fumble. So that would have made the game, if if Higgins got in the end zone, um, he was about an inch away from scoring. If Higgins would have scored, that would have made the game 16-10 to at that time. Kansas City would have got the ball. They ended up going down and kicking a field goal right before the half ended to make it 19 to 3. But if Higgins scores there, it's 19 to 10 at halftime instead of 19 to 3. More on that to come within uh, here in a minute. The other main play that changed this game was Patrick Mahomes getting hurt in the third quarter and leaving the game. He ended up keeping the ball. It was a kind of a read option. He ended up taking it for a few yards. Uh, he got hit by the Browns linebacker. And the hit was a it was not really a big hit. It was just awkward. Uh, he kind of got hit in the back of the head, like the linebacker's forearm hit Mahomes kind of in the back of the head underneath the helmet. To the point where, when Mahomes stood up, the dude was seeing Tweety Birds. Uh, He was super woozy, and you could tell, because he was just... He looked like he was uh, on another planet for a second. He had to have help from one of his offensive linemen. Uh, He ended up getting ruled out for the rest of the game uh, because of a, a concussion protocol. But this completely changed the complexion of the game because prior to uh, Patrick Mahomes leaving the game, prior to that injury, Kansas City had scored on four out of their five drives. The only drive they didn't score on was a missed field goal. So it had nothing to do with Mahomes. But Mahomes finished the game 21 of 30 for 255 yards and a touchdown passing. He also had three carries for 14 yards and a rushing touchdown. So Mahomes was super involved in the game plan. And at one point in the first half with Mahomes playing, Kansas City had 11 first downs on its first 21 plays. I mean, that's just absurd. That tells you, And they had several plays over 20 yards. They led the NFL in the regular season in 20-yard-plus plays, and they're just continuing to do that here in the playoffs. So Mahomes gets hurt. Chad Henney comes in. Chad Henney uh, went 6 of 8 for 66 yards and an interception. He just made a bad throw on a deep shot downfield, and it was picked off in the end zone. But Henney did make two massive plays at the end of the game. One of them came on 3rd and 14. He dropped back, uh, nobody open, kind of under pressure, took off running, and he made it 13 and a half yards, which left him about a half yard short. So their next play was fourth and inches, and the Chiefs had the ball on their, I believe it was around their 48-yard line, so they were in their own territory, uh, near midfield, but still in their own territory, fourth and inches, and Kansas City lines up in a shotgun form. 
that is definitely an Andy Reid play. Uh, fourth and inches in your own territory, and you are in shotgun formation. And everybody was fooled because even Tony Romo on the CBS broadcast said, oh, there's no play. There is no play. They're trying to draw them off sides and get the first down, which is, I think, what I, I, I'm pretty sure the Browns were on the same page, too. There's no way they're going to snap this. Well, all of a sudden, Henny snaps the ball and throws a quick three-yard pass to Tyreek Hill, who ran a quick out and ran towards the sidelines before sitting down in bounds to effectively end the game because Cleveland had no timeouts and there was less than two minutes left after that conversion. So crazy wild game. If Mahomes was healthy the whole game, uh, Kansas City probably would have won by uh, at least two scores. But I told you the final score was 22-17. That Richard Higgins play, that was that changed the game. If Higgins scores a touchdown, Kansas City might not win this game. So that was a huge, huge play. Uh, you knew it was at the moment, but... Kansas City won by five, so if they score that, kick the extra point, Kansas City would have had to have scored on that final drive after they converted that fourth and inches play. But the final NFL game this past weekend in the divisional round was in the NFC, and it was the number five Tampa Bay Buccaneers traveling to the Superdome to take on the number two seeded New Orleans Saints. Now, I picked New Orleans to win this game but Tampa Bay ended up winning 30-20. to And this game was the first time in NFL history in a playoff game that two 40-year-old quarterbacks started. Both quarterbacks, of course, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, they're going to be first ballot Hall of Famers. Both of them, they're the top two quarterbacks, you know, in NFL history, a couple of them. They're one and two in passing yards and passing touchdowns. But this game, it went back and forth in the first half. It was 13-13 to 13 at halftime. The Saints, they had a beautiful trick play in the second quarter in which Jameis Winston came into the game, and he lined up at wide receiver. They did a reverse, and Winston ended up with the football, and he threw a beautiful 56-yard strike to Traquan Smith for the touchdown. It was, believe it or not, it was Jameis Winston's first passing touchdown as a New Orleans Saint because uh, Taysom Hill played earlier in the year when Drew Brees was hurt, not Jameis Winston. So it was his first passing touchdown as a Saint. So tie game at half. The Saints get the ball. They come out with a 10-play, 75-yard drive capped off by a 16-yard touchdown pass from Drew Brees to Traquan Smith for his second of the game to make it 20-13. to 13. And that was all she wrote for the Saints' offense. They did not score again after that. In fact, the Saints turned into a turnover machine. Their final four drives, they had a punt, two interceptions, and a lost fumble. And all Tampa Bay did was say, thank you very much. We're going to cash these into points. And that's what they did. Uh, Tom Brady finished the game 18 of 33 passing for 199 yards and two touchdowns. 
He also added a very, very rare rushing touchdown. Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette, the Bucks running backs, they both had over 60 yards rushing to help the offense out. Put them over 120 yards rushing for the game. Now on the Saints side, Drew Brees was just an absolutely abysmal 19 of 34 for 134 yards, one touchdown, and three interceptions. Alvin Kamara, he just did what Alvin Kamara does, 105 total yards. And then you have Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas finished the game after finding the end zone last week and getting 76 yards passing, or receiving, rather. Michael Thomas comes out, and he finished with the same amount of yards as you and I. Zero. On four targets. And I told you when I picked the Saints to win that the Saints go as Kamara and Thomas go. Well, Kamara held up his end of the bargain, but Thomas obviously didn't. And Breeze was not great at all. So that's why the Saints lost. Because if Breeze is bad, Thomas is going to be bad. And that's two out of your big three. Kamara can run all day, but if Breeze and Thomas are off and Breeze is turning the ball over like he did, the Saints didn't have a chance to win that game. Now, after the game, there were rumors about Drew Breeze. He was seen, you know, blowing kisses to the stands and waving and coming back onto the field. Uh, So there was reports that this was going to be his last game in the NFL. And he was asked about it after. He said he's going to take the offseason to think about it. I just don't see Drew Brees retiring on that horrible performance. He's had an amazing career. First ballot Hall of Famer. I just don't see him retiring when his last game at the Superdome, he lost. He was less than, well, right around 50% passing. Just barely over 50% passing. Three turnovers in a loss. I just don't see him retiring on that. But I could be wrong. It was a pretty cool scene after the game, too, after everybody, uh, all the press conferences were done. Um, Breeze and Brady met on the field, shook hands and hugged. Drew Breeze had his kiddos out there, and Tom Brady was throwing them touchdown passes in the end zone. Pretty cool little scene there. You may have seen the video on social media, but if that's uh, that's all she wrote for Drew Breeze in his career, again, for sure, first ballot Hall of Famer, uh, hell of a career. So to recap the divisional round picks, I went 3-1. and one. My only loss was, of course, that Saints-Buccaneers game that we just talked about. But we'll look ahead. This weekend is conference championship weekend. The AFC matchup, the number two seed Buffalo Bills, they'll be going to Arrowhead Stadium to take on the top seed Kansas City Chiefs. Now, Patrick Mahomes has been in concussion protocol all week for that hit that he took that knocked him out of the game. All reports indicate that he's progressing very well and the Chiefs aren't concerned about his availability. But let's be honest. It's the Chiefs, it's Patrick Mahomes, and he's being evaluated for 
uh, a neck. It was they they didn't even deem it to be a concussion. It was they had him in concussion protocol for a nerve injury in his neck, which pre- precisely explains why he looked all woozy after taking that shot to the neck because he probably knocked him a little loopy getting a forearm to the back of the head. But so it's not even diagnosed as a concussion. There's absolutely no way in hell that Patrick Mahomes does not play. Mahomes will be out there. He will play. And there should be zero concern about that. Um, he practiced today, uh, Thursday, getting ready for the game. Uh, I'm not worried about it. The, the Chiefs don't seem to be worried about it. Mahomes will be out there. This is the third consecutive season that the Kansas City Chiefs have hosted the AFC title game. So they're used to used to being here. Um, I like the Buffalo Bills. They're a good team. That combination of Allen and Diggs has been unstoppable. They'll probably continue to do their thing this week. But I'm not picking against Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs. Mahomes is going to play. Now, if, let me preface this, if for some unforeseen reason Patrick Mahomes is ruled out, then I'm taking the Bills to win the game. But I don't think we have to worry about that because Mahomes is playing. So give me the Chiefs on that. I just, that offense is just really unstoppable with Mahomes at the helm. It doesn't matter how you defend him. Mahomes is going to move the ball. Kansas City is going to score points. And I just think it could turn into a shootout. The Chiefs beat the Bills earlier in the year when they played in Buffalo when it was raining. Mahomes didn't even have to work that hard. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Alaire had 150 yards, 130 yards, and a touchdown. So that was a rushing game due to the rain, uh, and that was in Buffalo. But... I there's I, I just don't see that if Mahomes is is playing I just don't see the Chiefs losing, uh, and if it's a shootout I have more confidence in Kansas City's offense than I do Buffalo's offense to put points on the board, so give me the Chiefs to win the AFC uh, and move on to the Super Bowl. Now in the NFC, boy we got a good one. Number five seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they travel to Lambeau Field to take on the top-seeded Green Bay Packers. Uh, Tom Brady versus Aaron Rodgers. That's the matchup we got for quarterbacks. This is Tom Brady's 14th conference championship game in his 21-year career. That is just outrageous. Now, Aaron Rodgers, this is his fifth appearance in the conference championship game. And oddly enough, this is the first time that he will be hosting it at Lambeau Field. The other four championship games he's appeared in have been away from Lambeau Field, which I thought was very strange. So it's the first first NFC championship game for Aaron Rodgers at Lambeau Field. He is 1-3 in in NFC championship games in his career. He's only been to the Super Bowl once. Now, I won it. But still, I, that just again those those things seem odd. Um, now, playing at Lambeau Field is just a different brand of football. It's going to be cold in the twenties this weekend. There's snow in the forecast. 
But if anybody's used to it, it's Tom Brady. He spent all those years in New England, 20 to be exact. And if Tampa Bay wins, they will have won all three of their playoff games on the road. And their reward for doing so is to get to the Super Bowl in their home stadium of Raymond James Stadium. Now, the Buccaneers, if they can pull that off, they would be the first team in NFL history to play the Super Bowl in their own stadium. So, my prediction. I love the Packers, based on what I saw last week with that defense. Now, these two teams played earlier in the year. I believe it was week six. Packers went to Tampa Bay to play Brady and the Bucks. And that was just an absolute demolition by the Buccaneers. The Bucs just absolutely steamrolled them. Their defense was absolutely on point. A couple turnovers by the Packers, um, including a pick six uh, thrown by Rodgers. Just complete domination by Tampa Bay. Um, I like Tampa Bay in this one. Uh, I'm going. I picked against Tom Brady last week against the Saints, and you saw what it did for me. So, uh, I, you know, I did not pick Tampa Bay to be in this game, but I just have a hard time at this particular moment. They just he proved me wrong once again. I have a hard time picking against Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. So, for the simple, this is a coin flip game. I would not be surprised if the Packers won. Would not be surprised if the Buccaneers won. I think both would represent the NFC very well in the Super Bowl. I'm just taking Brady over Rodgers. I just... that The Brady factor in the playoffs, he's already made me look stupid once. So why not pick Tampa Bay? So let's go with the Buccaneers on that one. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association. And the NBA, they are underway into their season. Most teams have played uh, around uh, between 14 to 16-ish games. Give you a quick standings update, let you know where everybody's at. In the Eastern Conference, Philadelphia 76ers are up top at 10-5. and five. Boston Celtics at 8-5. and five. Milwaukee Bucks at 9-6. and six. Indiana Pacers, 8-6. and six. Brooklyn Nets, 9-7. Cleveland Cavaliers and Atlanta Hawks are both at 7-7. And And the New York Knicks are still hanging around. They're in the 8th spot currently at 7-8. They're still, they're proven to show. Now the surprise is the Miami Heat. They're 6-7. Currently on the outside uh, looking in. Plenty of time to go, of course. But uh, in the Western Conference... The Los Angeles Lakers, 12-4. Los Angeles Clippers, 11-4. Utah Jazz, 10-4. Phoenix Suns are fourth at 8-5. They've looked pretty good this year. Golden State Warriors, Portland Trail Blazers, they're both 8-6. Memphis Grizzlies, 7-6. Although they just had a little bit of a COVID issue come down. Their next couple games are postponed. San Antonio Spurs are 8th at 8-7. And 
And then just outside the playoffs, the Dallas Mavericks, the Denver Nuggets, both at 7-7. and uh, I expect both of those teams to turn it around uh, and and be in that mix later on in the season. But we talked about the massive trade that went down in the NBA last week with the Brooklyn Nets and their uh, acquisition of James Harden. Well, James Harden's first game as a Brooklyn Net, all he did was go out and put up a 30-point triple-double. 32 points, 14 assists, and 12 rebounds. He was the first player in NBA history to record a 30-point triple-double in his debut with a new team. Well, Kyrie Irving didn't play. He was still sitting out doing what he was doing. But Kevin Durant chipped in with 42 points in that game in a win. So between Durant and Harden, they scored 74 points in that game. Now, in the the second game um, against... The Milwaukee Bucks, big game against the Bucks. The uh, Harden Durant combo was again on on fire. James Harden in the second game, he went thirty four points, twelve assists. So through his first two games, he had scored or assisted on one hundred and twenty nine points, which is the most in a player's first two games with a new team in NBA history. Uh, Harden is absolutely what the Nets needed. Kyrie Irving came back the other night, and their first game as a trio, they lost in double overtime to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So, uh, interesting note there, but Kyrie Irving chipped in with 37 points that game. So that team just looks... Uh, almost unfair. Now, they did lose, obviously, the first game at all three played, but nobody's beaten that team four times in seven games when they get to the playoffs. That's just not happening. Uh, and now, I will remind you that I did pick the Brooklyn Nets to win the Eastern Conference uh, several episodes ago before the season started. Now, I did not know of a James Harden trade, but Uh, at the time, obviously, but if you have Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving on one team, that seems like it's almost unfair, and then you throw in James Harden, and that is ridiculous. So uh, the NBA, we'll we'll get into some more news on that here in, in just a little bit, but we'll move on to the National Hockey League. And similarly to the NBA, uh, the National Hockey League is underway. Most teams have only played uh, roughly four games or so. Now, the Dallas Stars are the only team in the NHL to have not played a single game so far. They had a COVID outbreak with 17 players testing positive, and they have not been able to start their season. The Stars had 10 of their games changed around on the schedule in order to um, get get a full season in. So they will be starting their season uh, Friday, January 22nd. be their first game. So as a Stars fan, I'm excited that they're finally getting underway. Um, we'll go ahead and look at the standings updates for the NHL since we're talking about it. And remember, the divisions were realigned for this season only. 
top four teams in each division make the playoffs. So I'll just give you the top four teams as it sits right now in each division. In the Honda West division, the Vegas Golden Knights are 4-0. Minnesota Wild are 3-1. St. Louis Blues, 2-1-1. And Colorado Avalanche are 2-2. In the Scotia North division, which is the all-Canadian team division, the Montreal Canadiens are 3-0-2. Winnipeg Jets are 3-1. Toronto Maple Leafs, 3-2. And Calgary Flames, 2-0-1. In the Mass Mutual East Division, Philadelphia Flyers, 3-1-1. New York Islanders, 3-1. Washington Capitals, 2-0-2. New Jersey Devils, 2-1-1. In the Discover Central Division, Tampa Bay Lightning, 3-0. Florida Panthers 2 and 0. Nashville Predators 2 and 1. Carolina Hurricanes 2 and 1. Now of course, like I said, the, the Dallas Stars are in the Discover Central Division and they have yet to play a game. So they are sitting at the bottom of the Central, but they have zeros across the board until Friday. But The Washington Capitals, some interesting news out of the NHL involving the Washington Capitals. They had several players violate COVID health and safety protocols by involving in social interactions without face coverings. So the NHL has come out and fined the Washington Capitals as an organization $100,000 for those violations. And four of their top players... Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Dmitry Orlov, and Ilya Samsonov. All Russians, by the way. Uh, Interesting. They are all out for the next four games due to those violations. I don't believe any of them have tested positive, but those were four of the players involved in the COVID violations resulting in the uh, fine. So... They'll be hurting for the next four games without four of their top players. But I'm just ready for the Dallas Stars to get on the board here and start their season. Now, we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, where we do quick hit topics from various sports. And we'll start off in Major League Baseball. The MLB, of course, is still in their offseason, but we've got quite a bit to get into in the MLB, just a lot of free agent signings. The Toronto Blue Jays made the biggest splash thus far in free agency. They signed outfield uh, George Springer to a six-year, $150 million contract. And Springer joins an absolutely loaded Toronto Blue Jays lineup. You got Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Lords Guriel, Teo Oscar Hernandez, and then you throw George Springer in the mix. That team is going to be really good. Uh, I expect them to compete for the American League East. They have a decent pitching rotation as well to go with the good lineup. 
So that that acquisition of George Springer was just massive for the Blue Jays. Now, the New York Yankees also had a busy week. They re-signed all-star second baseman DJ LeMahieu to a six-year, $90 million contract. And they weren't done there because they also signed two-time Cy Young Award winner Corey Kluber to a one-year contract worth $11 million. Kluber was on the Texas Rangers last year and got hurt in his very first start. So he only pitched uh, a couple innings for the Rangers before uh, opting for free agency and, of course, now signing with the Yankees. So the Yankees will add Kluber. Uh, they obviously have a good bullpen or a good rotation and bullpen as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if Kluber still has anything left in the tank. But some other notable free agent signings. Pitcher Mike Miner. He signed with the Kansas City Royals. Pitcher Drew Smiley signed with the Atlanta Braves. That's a good signing for the Braves. They already have a solid uh, young rotation, and uh, Smiley just kind of adds another quality starter to that. Uh, Marcus Stroman, he's a, he was been an all-star starting pitcher at one point in his career. He just signed, uh, re-signed with the New York Mets. Uh, pitcher Jose Quintana signed a one-year deal with the Los Angeles Angels. Pitcher Jay Happ signed a one-year $8 million deal with the uh, Minnesota Twins. He was on the Yankees last year, and now he'll be on the Twins. Now, strange story here. Outfielder Michael Brantley. It was originally reported that he had signed with the Toronto Blue Jays, but then... Reports said, oh, hold on, that's not official. Well, he ends up re-signing with the Houston Astros on a two-year deal. So, he Brantley's staying in Houston. Tampa Bay Rays, they signed pitcher Michael Waka and re-signed catcher Mike Zanino. They did lose outfielder Hunter Renfro, though, because he decided to sign with the Boston Red Sox. Now, another good signing is the Washington Nationals. They signed pitcher John Lester to a one-year deal. They already got Max Scherzer and Patrick Corbin. And Lester is obviously past his prime, but he can still throw some quality innings. And he fits in very nicely at the back end of that rotation. They've already added some big bats at first base between Kyle Schwarber and traded for Josh Bell. So I think... The Nationals are are certainly doing enough to regain control of that National League East. It'll be very interesting to see how that turns out. But the biggest news out of the MLB this past week involved the New York Mets. Uh, They struck out on George Springer. They were the other team that was vying for George Springer's services. Springer obviously opting to go to Toronto. But news came out that uh, New York Mets fired their general manager, Jared Porter, less than 24 hours after it was reported that Porter had sent graphic, uninvited text messages to a female reporter back in 2016 when he was working for the Chicago Cubs. Very strange story. Um, He sent like 63 unanswered text messages and then sent a picture of his male genitalia that was completely un, 
provoked. Uh, super strange story. Uh, if if you haven't heard about it, I'd encourage you to Google it and read up on it because it is very odd. But kind of a mess going on there with the Mets. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, circle back there for a minute. The Indiana Pacers, they were involved in that blockbuster trade with the Brooklyn Nets, Houston Rockets uh, last week. The pl- one of the players they got in the trade was Karis LeVert. And since the trade went down, Karis LeVert has been ruled out indefinitely after an MRI revealed a small mass on his left kidney. That mass was discovered during the physical that was conducted prior to the teams finalizing the four-team blockbuster trade that went down. So basically, the Pacers knew that he had this mass on his kidney and still went ahead and made the trade, which is a testament to Levert's talent because they still wanted him. But Karis Levert is now out indefinitely, and he's going to be undergoing more tests, and his status is going to be updated later. But... Levert was asked about it, and he came out and said that he was feeling uh, 100% healthy at the time, had no symptoms that would have indicated that he had a mass on his kidney. So Karis Levert is basically saying that this blockbuster trade, which forced him to get a physical exam, could have saved his life, depending on what the outcome is of this mass. Uh, if it turns out to be cancerous or something harmful. So, definitely an interesting story there. But some other news out of the NBA. They are tightening up their COVID protocols. I talked last week about some of the restrictions that they have on and off the court. Well, they're going to be enforcing uh, some more protocol on the court. They're going to be having security at midcourt before and after the game uh, in order to deter players from players and coaches rather from uh, hugging and shaking hands pre-game and post-game basically the whole and the whole purpose is to dissuade them from making contact and getting in each other's personal space which I guess it's okay to do it all game long but you can't do it before or after the game that doesn't exactly make sense but I guess that's just one more way for the NBA to say that they are doing everything they can to keep basketball on the court, which is what it is, I suppose. Make a quick jump over to college football. Draft is coming up quick. We're inside of 100 days from that. The There's been announcements left and right of peop, uh, you know, the kids uh, declaring for the draft or returning to school. Uh, But this past week, Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields, he officially declared for the NFL draft. Fields is, of course, uh, a top prospect. Mel Kuyper Jr. for ESPN has him currently rated as the number three overall prospect. I talked about Fields' performances uh, uh, against Clemson in that playoff game. Uh, Definitely solidified himself as a top ten pick. Uh, So there was... Uh, Maybe some chatter of him possibly considering returning or if he did return, what it would look like. But that report can be put to bed because Fields is going to be a top 10 pick in the NFL draft in less than 100 days.
circle back over to the PGA Tour real quick. Uh, Due to some logistical challenges posed by the pandemic, of course, the PGA Tour announced this week that the 2021 World Golf Championships Mexico Championship will not be played in Mexico this year. That event instead is getting moved to the Concession Golf Club in Bradenton, Florida, and it's going to be held February 25th through the 28th. So just over a month is the World Golf Championship Mexico Championship, except it's in Florida. There's going to be no change to the eligibility requirements of this tournament. And now, being that this tournament is getting moved to Florida, it just conveniently kicks off a four-week Florida swing for the PGA Tour that also features the Arnold Palmer Invitational, the Players' Championship, and the Honda Classic. So there's a few good weeks of golf there between the WGC, the Arnold Palmer, and the Players. That'll be three events in a row that have really top-flight fields, be some real good competitive golf, and they don't even have to go real far because they spend a month in Florida. Now, speaking of the Arnold Palmer Invitational, the PGA Tour also came out and said this week that that tournament is going to be the first tournament with more than a few thousand fans in attendance. They kind of tried it out here these last couple tournaments. Uh, but tournament, the Arnold Palmer Invitational is going to allow 25% capacity on the course, which is about 8,000 fans. Uh, There haven't really been any more than about 2,000 fans at these events that they've let fans into so far. Cool thing about the Arnold Palmer doing that is that the Arnold Palmer Invitational in 2020 was held back in March. That was the last PGA Tour event to be played with full spectators. So kind of cool, coming full circle here, that uh, the Arnold Palmer was the last event to have full stands, and now they're the first event to allow at least 25% capacity. So that'll be cool to watch on TV, finally hear some fans uh, heckling the players. But some big news out of the PGA was Tiger Woods. Uh, This dude, he has to have like a bionic back at this point. Tiger Woods went a, uh, he underwent a microdisectomy on his back this past week to remove a pressurized disc fragment that was giving him nerve pain uh, during that PNC championship about a month ago when he got to play with his son Charlie. So he was kind of feeling some nerve pain in that tournament. He went, got it checked out, and they figured he needed this microdisectomy. So because he had that, Tiger Woods has already removed himself from his first two scheduled events, which was the Farmers Insurance Open and the Genesis Invitational, which are coming up here in the next few weeks. So keep an eye on that. We'll have to see when Tiger Woods decides to, or when he's feeling well enough to come back. It doesn't sound like this procedure was very invasive. So the good news is that Tiger Woods should be back on course uh, here sooner rather than later. But we'll jump over to college basketball, NCAA basketball. We'll take a look at a rankings update. We haven't done that in a couple weeks. The Associated Press Top 25 uh, coming into this week. 
Number one, Gonzaga Bulldogs, 14 and 0. Number two, the Baylor Bears, they are 13 and 0. Villanova, they went about a month off not playing uh, because of some COVID stuff. They're at nine and one. They're third in the country. Uh, they ended up winning their first game back after a month off. Keep them at, in third place there, ranked number three. Uh, number four, the Iowa Hawkeyes. They are 12-3. and three. Luca Garza continues to do Luca Garza things. Number five, Texas Longhorns. They are 11-2. They lost an absolute heartbreaker to Texas Tech in a last-second buzzer-beater shot last week. Uh, but they're still hanging around. They're at five. Tennessee is at six. They're ten and two. The Michigan Wolverines. Uh, they made it up to uh, eleven and zero or twelve and zero before they lost. Uh, they're twelve and one as it sits now, uh, and they just they got blown out the other night. And uh, but they look like a really good team and uh, definitely are going to be making some noise here come March. Houston Cougars are number eight at twelve and one. Kansas Jayhawks, 10 and 4, they're at 9. The 10th team is the Wisconsin Badgers, 12 and 3. Uh, Creighton, they've moved up. They're at number 11, 10 and 4 is their record. Those Texas Tech Red Raiders that beat my Texas Longhorns, they're sitting at 12 at 11 and 4. Virginia, they're 13th at 9 and 2. West Virginia is 14th at 9 and 4. Ohio State is 15th at 11 and 4. Virginia Tech, they're 16. Uh, Minnesota's 17. Alabama, they're 18th. They're 12 and 3. And they went absolute berserk the other night against LSU. They hit 23 three pointers in that game. Uh, Missouri is 19th. Clemson is 20. Oregon, 21, Illinois, 22, Connecticut, they're 23, UCLA, 24, and St. Louis rounds out your top 25. A lot of Big Ten teams in there, a lot of Big 12 teams in there. Those are the best two conferences in college basketball. I would say the slight edge goes to the Big Ten. They seem to be more complete from top to bottom, Um, but... Uh, the Big 12 may be more top-heavy. But both of those conferences are going to be heavily represented in the March Madness tournament, which, regarding that tournament, I talked last week about how all of the games are going to be played in uh, in Indiana, Indianapolis, uh, as kind of the NCAA's version of a college basketball bubble. Well, they kind of filled us in on some more info this week on that. The first games of the tournament are going to start on March 18th. The second round games will be played on March 21st and 22nd. The Sweet 16, that's going to be played at Bankers Life Fieldhouse and Hinkle Fieldhouse on March 27th and 28th. The Elite 8 will be March 29th and 30th. The Final Four is going to be April 3rd and April 5th. Now, all of the Elite Eight and Final Four games will be played at Lucas Oil Stadium, uh, where the Colts play. So, we'll wrap up around the island 
going back to the National Football League, and there's a ton of stuff to get into with the NFL, and we'll just jump into it. We'll talk about some head coaching hires. We had a few last week, and we had several more this week. The Atlanta Falcons, they hired Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator Arthur Smith. He's a good offensive mind, and with the running back situation he had in Tennessee, they were obviously very run-heavy, so I think he's going to look to get Atlanta's running game back. Um, The Los Angeles Chargers, they hired Los Angeles Rams defensive coordinator Brandon Staley. Now, Staley is young. He's only 38 years old, never been a head coach, just an interesting hire for a team, a Chargers team that has a good young offense with a soon-to-be second-year quarterback, Justin Herbert. Now, the Chargers defense does have some good players. Of course, Joey Bosa, Melvin Ingram, and they're going to get safety Derwin James back this year or this upcoming year since he missed all this past year with an injury. But, uh, I yeah, just an interesting hire there uh, for a Chargers team that seems to pride itself on offense. The Detroit Lions... They have hired New Orleans Saints assistant head coach and tight ends coach Dan Campbell. Another interesting hire, uh, I think his offensive mind under Sean Payton, I think he's going to benefit uh, that Lions offense with Matt Stafford, Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay will be back. Of course, DeAndre Swift really bust onto the scene this year as a rookie running back. Lions have a decent offense, so I think Dan Campbell's going to come in there and put together uh, a decent-looking offense. The Lions own the seventh pick in the draft. Um, And Dan Campbell, man, he gave an epic press conference. If you haven't heard it, uh, go take a look. Go YouTube it or something. Great press conference by Dan Campbell uh, when he was introduced as head coach. Now, the Philadelphia Eagles, they also made an interesting hire. They hired Indianapolis Colts offensive coordinator, Nick Sirianni. He's another young coach. Sirianni is only 39 years old. But he's he's been a coach for a little while. He spent three seasons with the Kansas City Chiefs, five seasons with the L.A. Chargers, and the past three seasons with the Colts. Now, the Colts' offense has been pretty good with Sirianni as the O.C. So I think Jalen Hurts and Miles Sanders are, are going to benefit from his game. They seem to have a pretty balanced pass versus run. Uh, The Colts were probably more a little run heavy, but again, that just benefits Hurts and Sanders. Who the hell knows what's going on with Carson Wentz? Uh, Would be shocked if he's somehow named the starter next year over Jalen Hurts, but keep an eye on that. Sirianni's kind of uh, walking into a mess. The Eagles own the sixth pick in the draft. So after all those hires, that leaves the Houston Texans with the only head coaching vacancy in the league at the moment. And speaking of the Houston Texans, the Deshaun Watson saga. I've talked about it the last two episodes, about rumors of him getting traded to the Dolphins and how that's been picking up steam. Well, this past week, ESPN NFL reporter or insider Adam Schefter came out and said that Many people in the Houston Texans organization believe that Deshaun Watson has played his last snap 
as a Houston Texan. So that basically, uh, that doesn't confirm that he's getting traded, but Shefty seems to know everything there is about anything football. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that Watson is going to be on the move. And if I'm Watson, I'm probably begging to get out of Houston. I talked about their lack of weapons. I talked about their lack of draft picks that they've traded away. Your starting conversation for Deshaun Watson is your starting quarterback plus at least three first-round draft picks, which is what Houston needs. I would say the top two teams in the running right now for Deshaun Watson are the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets. Uh, They could trade. Dolphins could trade Tua and three first-round picks with all the draft capital they have. The Jets could trade Sam Darnold and three first-round picks with the draft capital they have. Another team that I've heard is the San Francisco 49ers. They would trade Jimmy Garoppolo and several first-round picks. All of those quarterbacks you can plug into Houston and immediately play. So I think the trade to any one of those teams would make sense and benefit both Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. The Texans need to rebuild, and as it currently sits, they just do not have the immediate draft capital in the next couple years to conduct a rebuild. They're going to need to move on from Watson. So I, I think it that would be a mutually beneficial trade. But uh, some other news out of the NFL. Denver, linebacker, uh, Denver Broncos linebacker Vaughn Miller. He is currently... Uh, under investigation by the Parker, Colorado Police Department for an alleged domestic violence incident. Now, there hasn't really been any information released on it, and there have been no charges filed at this time. So the NFL is going to look into it. And, of course, as we've seen from previous examples of domestic violence with uh, accusations made against uh, Zeke Elliott uh, and some other players... The NFL will suspend you, so this could be huge news. Of course, Vaughn Miller got hurt last year and missed basically all the... Well, he did miss all the season because he got hurt in uh, training camp, tore something, a ligament in his ankle, missed all year, so he didn't even play this year. So if, if this charge is sustained or if the NFL does si- decide to suspend him, that's going to hurt the Denver defense that desperately needs him to come back. So stay tuned on that, but... Now some roster moves out of the NFL. The Baltimore Ravens, they lost last week. They made two roster cuts this week. They waived backup quarterback Robert Griffin III, and they also released running back Mark Ingram. The RG3 one wasn't really a surprise. Uh, He's past his prime, nothing more than a backup. But the Mark Ingram, that was kind of surprising. Yes, they have J.K. Dobbins, who really came into his own as a rookie this year and will be the starting running back moving forward. But Mark Ingram, uh, been a great player for the Ravens. Uh, just just a complete, solid player. Uh, this move will... The reason that the Ravens cut him is because it saves him $5 million in cap space. Uh, It also allows Mark Ingram to get a head start in free agency to figure out where he wants to go. Kind of a mutual respect thing. 
they knew they didn't have plans for Mark Ingram moving forward, so they just went ahead and did it now. But uh, long-time Los Angeles Chargers quarterback, uh, this most recent season, the Indianapolis Colts quarterback, Phillip Rivers. He announced his retirement from the NFL after 17 seasons. Uh, Phillip Rivers is 39 years old, played 16 seasons with the San Diego-slash-LA Chargers organization, and one with the Indianapolis Colts. Rivers made eight Pro Bowls in his career, and he is currently fifth all-time in passing yards and passing touchdowns. So uh, now the interesting thing about Rivers is that he has never made it to the Super Bowl. He's never won a Super Bowl. He's never made it to the Super Bowl. So he will go down as the very best or one of the very best quarterbacks to never win a Super Bowl. The other quarterback that comes to mind, of course, is Dan Marino. But uh, Rivers has passed Marino in passing yards and touchdowns. So uh, Rivers has been a good quarterback his whole career. He's never really been, um, you know, elite. I don't know. He, I don't believe him to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, I think he'll get into the Hall of Fame just based on his numbers. Uh, but I don't believe uh, he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Now, another quarterback that has, uh, that just, I guess, moved teams is uh, quarterback Dwayne Haskins. As you remember, he was waived by the Washington football team a few weeks back after the Washington football team drafted him 14th overall just two years ago out of Ohio State. I like this signing for the Steelers and for Dwayne Haskins, really, because Haskins, uh, he had monster numbers in college at Ohio State, but he only played one year as a starter. So he was super raw, super immature, and he was thrown into a starting role in Washington on a team that has uh, very minimal weapons and uh, offensively. So he was kind of set up to fail. I think sitting uh, behind Ben Roethlisberger, learning that system, Mike Tomlin as your coach to force the discipline, uh, and accountability. I think it's a great situation for Haskins. And uh, it's a one-year deal. So if Ben Roethlisberger retires after the 2022 or 2021 season, uh, 2022 could be a big, big year for Haskins. He might be able to sign a, a multi-year contract and take over the helmet quarterback for the Steelers if he can continue to grow and develop because he has shown promising uh, ability at times in the NFL, just not consistently. But uh, some other news out of the NFL. They announced this past week that they are going to have their very first female official in the Super Bowl. Sarah Thomas, she was named to the Super Bowl 55 officiating crew uh, here in a couple weeks in Tampa Bay, and she will serve as the down judge uh, on referee Carl Sheffer's officiating crew in the Super Bowl. So, uh, very neat. Uh, we're starting to see women get more prominent roles in sports here over this last year or two. So that's good for, good for the sport, good for Sarah Thomas and, uh, good for women that have an interest in, um, making, uh, making a name in sports. I think that's, that's important. 
but some some other news out of the NFL. We'll kind of wrap it up here. The NFL Combine. Uh, it's been held every year in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Stadium since 1987. And this year, the NFL Combine will not be happening. Uh, the NFL announced they're changing the format uh, of the Combine this year due to the pandemic, obviously. So instead of meeting in Indy, the top you know three or 400 prospects get invited to the Combine where they do on-field workouts for teams, they do interviews, etc. Well, now, all of those, there will be no in-person workouts in Indianapolis. The colleges are going to hold pro days on their campuses, which they always do, but that is where the combine workouts are going to happen. So the NFL is working with the colleges to ensure uniformity in the pro day workouts, whereas normally uh, pro days you can kind of do your own workouts. Colleges have their own workouts planned because the combine is uh, has their uniformity with everybody being together. But this year, the combine will take place at the pro day at different locations. So the league is is still working to determine a few things. Uh, one, if team representatives are going to be permitted to attend the pro days, scouts and such, coaches, or if they're just going to have to rely on video that's distributed by the schools. Now, the same thing applies to the media and their avail- availability to attend the pro days. They're still working on those details. But the interview process for the prospects has changed. Since they're not, media it might, may or may not be allowed to, to show up. Um, they're going to do all virtual interviews with the prospects. Now, normally, teams are allowed to hold 15-minute in-person interviews with the prospects, but that's going to be done virtually this year via Zoom or however they so choose to do it. Now, as far as the medical examinations that take place at the Combine, the NFL is working on a plan for getting those taken care of, uh, and that would involve a select number of prospects being permitted to have in-person examinations uh, at one or more designated locations sometime in April. Uh, but what what is most likely going to happen is that each team will probably be uh, able to send one team physician and one personal trainer, team trainer, to those in-person exams. So... Uh, that is, again, a way to limit the number of people that are interacting with these prospects. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic going on, everything's been virtual. Everything's been from a distance this year. So it's going to be uh, very different to watch the Combine in a pro day format this year. I love the Combine. As I've said before on another episode, the Combine's one of my – I love the NFL draft. I love watching the NFL Combine. A lot of these pro days will be televised, I'm sure, at least the major ones. So we'll still get to watch the on-field workouts, but it just will not be the same now that they're not at Lucas Oil Stadium this year. So, uh, But that is going to wrap up the 24th version of Sports Island. Uh, as always, you do with any podcasts you enjoy, rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.